Today we come to the powerful, sobering, inspiring story of the first martyr ever, the first martyr in the Christian church, a man named Stephen, Acts chapter 6. You know the story. Sure you do. A tornado is bearing down on Dorothy. Dorothy runs into the farmhouse. She runs into her bedroom, into the bed, and the tornado swoops up the farmhouse and spins it around, and then it comes crashing down in the merry old land of Oz. And Dorothy walks out her front door holding her little dog, and she utters the famous line, Toto, have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. I think American Christians, and maybe even Americans in general, as we look around at our society, are increasingly having a Dorothy kind of experience. As we look at American culture and we say, Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Over the last uh, 40 years, 30 years, even like 20 years, I mean, it's been dramatic that the transformation in our society, both in terms of moral norms, in terms of kind of the ideological climate in which we live, the the way people think about God and family and so many different things, it it has shifted, and not just shifted, but it's been rapid. It's been been a quick change. Uh, It used to be back in, you know, Kansas that um, there was a a general Judeo-Christian ethic and understanding of morality that people just kind of got. And, And even if they weren't you know, uh, Christians in, in the sense that they would say, yeah, I'm a Christian. There, there was a kind of understanding of, of right and wrong that, that was similar and was owned. And, and there was, uh, you know, being a Christian was okay. You know, it was either positive or maybe neutral. But, but it was part of the culture and people understood it. And even people who, who didn't, uh, you know, claim to be Christians, I mean, there was an understanding of basic, even like Bible stories and things like that. You know, probably there's people today going to see the new uh, Exodus movie, Gods and Kings, for whom that story will be completely new and unheard of, and, and that will be their first exposure even to that, whereas 40 years ago, you know, people had heard of you know, Moses and the Red Sea. People had heard the story, and yet today, that's not always the case. Morality has changed. Uh, understanding of, of God has changed. Understanding of so many things have changed. And sometimes today, saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, rather than being positive or neutral, kind of increasingly you can find yourself being in a negative position where it's like, oh, you're one of them? Close-minded, bigoted, intolerant, you know, you know that kind of language. And what? When, when did this happen? I just got spun up on a tornado, and now everything has changed in our own lifetime. Uh, it, it probably, as, as we think about that transformation at the, at the tip of the spear, at, at the very sort of most intense part of it has been the whole um, social issue we've wrestled with, with uh, same-sex marriage. That, that's been at the center, but it's bigger than that. It, it's the whole sexual revolution, and it's the whole different norms and understandings of the family and male and female, but it's even bigger than that. It's secularization. It, it's the increasing sort of... Uh, discomfort with having any kind of religious or spiritual voice in the public square, and as that has been pushed out and relegated to the private realm, and then even the private realm now being invaded, we feel perhaps, something has shifted. And so those of you, especially who've been Christians, or even just Americans for decades, you know, you look around and you say, how did this happen so quickly? It's It's amazing. Or to put it another way, I think that Christians in America today are slowly but surely finding themselves more and more of a situation that looks something more akin to what the New Testament Christians went through, where, where they were a kind of minority viewpoint. They, they were not in the ideological mainstream. They had a different faith and a different morality. Well, this morning we come to Acts chapter, as I said, chapter 6, chapter 7, and we come to the story of the first Christian martyr, the first uh, person to die for his faith, the story of Stephen. I'll tell you what, I think we today, American Christians, we really need the story of Stephen because we need someone to show us what to do. You know, as I talk to Christians, my, my sense is as this cultural transformation is happening, 
Christians just feel bewildered. Like, what do we do? How do we respond to this? I, I don't even know how to react. And, and people are discouraged and they're angry and they're confused. And so we, we need a path forward. We need a, an example of what does it look like to live in Oz? And so we have Stephen. He's a picture of a person suffering and dying for his faith, but not just suffering and dying for his faith, but suffering and dying in a way that glorifies God. And so I think we see in Stephen a model, an example of what it looks like to be a faithful Christian in a culture that that is perhaps in some ways becoming more hostile and antithetical to the faith. So let's look at the story. It's three sections. There's a short section in the beginning at the end of chapter 6, and then a big long section in the middle of chapter 7, and then a little section at the end of chapter 7. So there's three, three parts to it. The first part I'm going to call the, the arrest of Stephen, the, Stephen's arrest. So let's read that in verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from among members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by which he spoke. So here's Stephen. We met him last Sunday, if you were here. He's one of the seven who was appointed to take care of the the, the offerings given to the widows and the care of widows in the church. But as you can see, his ministry was way bigger than, than taking care of widows, as important as that was. He was also preaching the gospel. He was contending for the message of Jesus. And he was even doing miracles. He, he was kind of like a little mini apostle in some ways. Um, and, and here's Stephen uh, now debating with, it says, members of the synagogue of the freedmen. What's interesting about the people in this synagogue, his, his fellow Jews, is that they weren't from Jerusalem originally. They're from Cyrene and Alexandria, so they're from North Africa, the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. Asia would be like what Turkey is today, would be the province of Asia. So, in other words, these are people who are are Jewish brothers who uh, grew up in other parts of the world but have moved to Jerusalem, perhaps in part because of their devotion to the faith. So these people are hardcore, that's what we'd call them. They're seriously committed to their faith as, as Jewish people, to, the, to Moses and to the Torah. And to, they want to be in the city where the temple is. And they're in some kind of argument with Stephen. Stephen's preaching. They're opposing him. We don't know what exactly they were debating, but presuming that Stephen's preaching is like the rest of the preaching in Acts, probably Stephen was arguing from the old, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, about Jesus. He was trying to prove from the Hebrew Scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah, and, and probably they were arguing against that interpretation of their Scriptures. And so this debate was going on. It, it was this heated debate, and, you know, they, they couldn't silence Stephen that way. There's opposition. And so the, the legitimate debate wasn't going well, and so at least some of them anyway decided to, you know, play dirty, to fight dirty. So verse 11, then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I want to make one simple observation from this this opening scene of Stephen's arrest. And it's going to sound kind of simple, but I think, again, we need simple because we don't know how to do this. We're not from, at least if you're an American who's grown up here, you're not from a culture where, where we have been, had pushback on our faith. And so we need just some basics here on how to move forward. And so here's my simple observation here. Um, opposition to the gospel happens. It happens. It's rather normal, actually, in the history of the church and the history of the world even today, opposition, resistance, pushback, static against the message of Jesus is normal. It's, it's to be expected. 
that this is part of faithful ministry and faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus. We shouldn't be thrown off when there is opposition, whether legitimate debate and discussion or dirty tricks and name-calling. You guys are haters. I'm not a hater, you know? Well, haters always hate, you know, and all this stuff. You're like, I don't hate anybody. Well, you must. I don't. You're intolerant. I'm not intolerant. You know, you've just redefined tolerance. No, we haven't. Yes, you have. And it's like, oh, you're calling me names. So there's all this dirty name calling and, you know, shifting of terms and playing with words. And you, know, you feel like people are setting you up. And so it was, but whether it's a legitimate debate or, or whether it's dirty pool, we find that opposition happens. I mean, this isn't even the first time it's happened in Acts, right? Back in chapter 4, the apostles were arrested. Chapter 5, they're arrested and beaten. Chapter 6, Stephen is arrested and killed. Chapter 8, a general persecution breaks out against the church. And so we see that not only is there an escalation in terms of the fruitfulness of the ministry, it's like a revival. People are being saved, all kinds of miracles are happening, but there is also, a, at the same time, uh, an escalation in opposition and resistance against the gospel that in the end seems to win out, at least in Jerusalem, in, in the immediate consequences of all this. Jesus told us this would happen, didn't he? He said, look, they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. They hated me, they'll hate you. No teacher, no student is above his teacher. The teacher's been harassed, you're going to be harassed. Expect it. It's normal. It's part of faithful to Jesus. Even this story, look, look how the story is structured. Does Stephen's arrest and trial remind you of someone else's arrest and trial in the Bible? It's just like Jesus's. It's, it's very much patterned on it. There are false witnesses, just as there were at Jesus's trial. The accusation involves um, threats to destroy the temple, just as they accused Jesus of. Um, even the Sanhedrin... Stephen is literally standing before the very same Sanhedrin, the very same Jewish ruling council that Jesus stood before. It's literally the same faces that looked at Jesus. There hasn't been that much time has passed. Maybe there are a few changes, but it's the same group in the same city. And so it's, it's deja vu all over again repeated. Stephen is going through what Jesus went through. And that's, that's just a point here. The point is that if we follow Christ and we're faithful, we're going to get resistance. That, that resistance might come at some kind of big political level in terms of laws of the land. It, it might come in terms of cultural changes where, where at one point, you know, you were sort of culturally an insider and now you're viewed as a cultural outsider. It, it can be very personal sometimes. It can be a relative, a friend, somebody you're just trying to talk to and, and there's a, a rejection and a cutting off that happens. You know, so it can be at all different levels. But my point is, this is normal for the gospel. We shouldn't be surprised. We are, but we shouldn't be. I think sometimes that's where we struggle as Christians today is that this pushback and this opposition happens and we just don't know what to do. We freak out. We're like, what? What is happening? Huh? You know? And we react in different ways. Sometimes we react by being terrified and scared. And, you know, a sense of doom and gloom. Oh, where's our culture headed? What's going to happen? You know, chicken little, the sky is falling. The wheels are coming off the bus. Maybe I should move to a different country. You know, a country where there isn't persecution. I don't know, where, where do I go? Do I go to Australia? New Zealand, they film Lord of the Rings there. It looks sweet. Maybe I'll go to, maybe I'll go to New Zealand. Where should I go? You know, as, 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 if, as if you can escape the fundamental dynamic of the gospel of Jesus against a world that doesn't want to hear the gospel of Jesus. This is just, it's a dynamic. It's, it's, it's God saying, you're sinners, but I've sent my son to save you, and only my son can save you. And we don't want to hear that. We don't want to hear we're sinners, and we don't want to hear that we can't fix ourselves. And to think that I, I'm a sinner and, the, and my salvation is in God's grace, not in my efforts, that is always going to rub a culture the wrong way, and, and it'll look different in each culture, but every culture is, is opposed to the gospel in some way, shape, or form. And so, you know, we, we can panic, and we can get terrified, and we can get into this gloomy, kind of depressed, despairing, oh no, kind of victim mentality, right? 
Or maybe we see this transformation happening in the culture, and instead of feeling you know, terrified and anxious, we become angry and aggressive, and we're like, we're not going to take this lion down. We are going to organize, and we're going to take this country back and bring it back to its foundations, and, you know, that whole thing. And, you know, and well, I kind of have to be careful there, because should we as Christians in a democracy speak up and participate and stand for righteousness? Absolutely. You know, so so I'm, I'm not really advocating for a kind of unpolitical approach. I mean, I mean we as Christians, we're, we're part of this, we're in a democracy. You know, you say, well, the state has turned against God. Well, we're part of the state. And so we need to vote and we need to be active. So I guess what I'm saying is not so much whether or not we're active in the culture, but more like our heart attitude. Not being a heart attitude that is angry, aggressive, defensive, oh, they're taking it over, we're going to take it back, and and, and starting to see people who disagree as enemies to be defeated, as opposed to people who need Jesus, just like we needed Jesus, and not not, not being in this kind of state of of hostility toward other people, but but being able to, to pray for our enemies so that they might know Christ as well. I want to stay in that heart mindset, even as I advocate for righteousness, even if it's just how I vote or, or, or what, I, what I think about politically. I need to love, and I need to keep loving the way Christ loved. And that's hard to do. It's easy to become angry. It's easy to be in a state of outrage. Have you heard of this term before? I heard this term, and it's kind of a shocking term. The term is uh, sort of something that goes on in our culture. It's called outrage porn. Have you heard that phrase? Kind of provocative. Outrage porn. So porn, pornography, you know, looking at images that cause us to sin and lust. And so there's this idea of, of, of looking at, not instead of images of people, looking at issues that make us outraged. You know, can you believe that mayor in Texas, you know, subpoenaed the pastor's sermons? I can't, I'm outraged. You know, and it is outrageous. But, but you can get into this kind of mentality where it's always in a state of outrage. And so the liberals are outraged and the conservatives are outraged and, and everybody feels like they're a victim. Everybody feels outraged against everybody else. So that, that there's this kind of constant um, drumming up of examples of what the other side is doing that's so outrageous and everyone's angry. And polarization just increases. And it's tempting as a Christian to either be terrified and fearful or to be outraged and angry. To have a face with wide eyes that are scared or a face where the brow is furrowed. But I think we need a face like Stephen's. Verse 15. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Not exactly sure what that means, but I like it. What's the face of an angel? I mean, probably it's, it's kind of an allusion to his innocence, his holiness. Here he's being charged with things, and they look at him, and he's innocent. But it probably also speaks of his, just the peacefulness and the joy. And this is guy who's not getting thrown and rattled, and he's not... He's not in a state of rage. He's not in a state of terror. He's just, he was kind of probably like Jesus when Jesus was on trial. You know, he was quiet. He wasn't freaking out, but he wasn't running away. He just stood there and, and bore witness to the gospel and bore witness to his mission. Somehow, I, I feel that, that this is a picture of, of the way we need to posture ourselves and the way our hearts need to be as perhaps the culture becomes more and more like Oz we find ourselves disoriented, neither, neither terrified and fretting nor, nor in some kind of triumphalistic uh, guerrilla movement, um, but instead the face of an angel. Well, then that leads to the second scene in the story, which is chapter 7, verse 1. It goes all the way to verse 53. It's a big old long section. So the first section was Stephen's arrest, and the second section is Stephen's testimony. Stephen's testimony. So Stephen's arrest, 
followed by Stephen's testimony. And the testimony is basically his answer in the trial. And it, it's a long t- uh, segment. He, this is a, one sermon from Stephen. Um, but it's, uh, it's interesting. Maybe you've read it before. And, and if you've read it, at first blush, it seems like a long, rambling review of Israel's history. I don't know if you read it. And you kind of read it and you're like, why is that? Why is Stephen just kind of giving this long, rambling history lesson about Israel? What's going on here in this passage? Well, actually, I think it's very clever what he does. I think there's two things happening here. I think Stephen, by giving this long history review of Israel, is actually doing two things. He's defending himself, but he's also going on the offensive. He's He's slipping punches, but he's also counterpunching. He, he's, he's defending himself against the charges because the charges were, you're against Moses. You're, you're against our Jewish heritage. So by reviewing the history of Israel, he's showing them, I'm not against Judaism and, and Moses and our heritage. Look, I know this stuff cold just like you do. This is my heritage, just like it's your heritage. Come on, I'm, I'm one of you. So so he's building credibility, he's finding common ground, he's building bridges. Ah, but here's the other thing he does, is as he recounts Israel's history, here's the offensive part, he's also pointing out a theme in Israel's history, and the theme is this, God keeps sending deliverers to Israel, and Israel keeps rejecting them. So he's going to... I'll, show, I'll tell you the history, I know the history, and what about this part of the history? Hmm? And the point is, and guess what? It's deja vu repeated all over again. Jesus, the deliverer, has come, and you've rejected him. You guys think you're like so faithful to Moses. You, you're rejecting the, the, the Messiah who's like Moses, Jesus. So let me do this. We're going to read through this. I'm going to read the whole thing. We'll do it fast, Okay. I'm not going to get into all the weeds here as much as I'd love to. I'm going to discipline myself for the sake of lunch. And, and I'm just going to read us through it, but th- that's what I want you to listen for. Defensive, offensive. Look, I know the history too. I'm one of you, but also, and there's a part of the history I think you're overlooking, which is this pattern of rejecting the deliverer. Okay, first, Abraham. This is all defensive. There's no offensive move here. Verse 2 of chapter 7. Here we go. Ready? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father, our father, Abraham, while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. And after the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you're now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground, but God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land. And even though at that time Abraham had no child, God spoke to him in this way, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they'll be enslaved and mistreated 400 years, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. See, I know this history too. This is my history. I'm one of you guys. It's, it's cool. So he's building common ground, which I, I think is another lesson when you find yourself in the land of Oz. You need to build common ground. We have to be careful of being in such a defensive, hostile posture against perceived attacks, real or perceived, that, that we start forgetting that the people who we perceive are opposing the gospel message are, in fact, regular people just like us. We, we don't want to lose sight of our common humanity. We, we, we don't want to start characterizing people as if there's some other creatures or something. They're, they're people. There's a lot of commonality. You know, we have common hopes and aspirations and history and story. So so I think it's important as we're engaging a culture to to build as much common ground as we can to show, hey, your story is our story, and the ways we can do that uh, vary. Okay, next panel, verse 9, we go to Joseph. 
the story of Joseph and his technicolor dream coat. Here's the first moment of offensive, all right? Joseph goes offensive here because Joseph is going to be a big deliverer and the brothers reject him and sell him into slavery. So there's the, the theme is starting, all right? Verse nine, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. Eh? The 12 patriarchs, the 12 tribes of Israel are rejecting the deliverer. But here's the deliverance. But God was with him, and he rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. A, a deliverer who's a ruler and a king. That's the theme. The ruler, the king, the judge who delivers. Joseph was an example. Verse 11, Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. Third story, Moses. Now Moses is the big one. He's the one who really is the ruler, judge, deliverer whom Israel rejects. And so Stephen's going to spend more time on Moses, especially since they've been accusing him of rejecting Moses. He's going to be like, oh, yeah? Let me tell you about Moses. Let me tell you how you responded to Moses. I I haven't rejected Moses, but our, our forefathers rejected Moses. That's the pattern. Verse 17, as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. And then another king who knew nothing about Joseph became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so they would die. So the people of Israel and Egypt found themselves in the land of Oz with just one new Pharaoh. Verse 20, at that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. He's the deliverer. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house, and when he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. And when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that, what? God was using him to rescue them. But they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you're brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you, look at this phrase, ruler and judge over us. That's Moses, the deliverer who's the ruler and judge. He's a foreshadowing of Jesus, the deliverer who's ruler and judge. Verse 28, do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. And after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of the burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight, and he went over to look more closely, and he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and dared not dare to look. Then the Lord said, take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. You will be the deliverer, Moses. God's appointed you. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected. There's the pattern. With these words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel that appeared to him in the burning bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. Who's Jesus? (laughs) So again, Stephen is just building the case. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. But again, 
our fathers refused to obey him, and instead they rejected him. And then their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what was written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? No, you lifted up the shrine of Molech and the star of the god Raphan, the idols you had made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. You see the pattern. God raises up a deliverer who's the ruler and judge. They reject. They make their own gods, their own religion. And then finally, Stephen's got a hit on the temple because, remember, that was part of the indictment against him that Stephen was kind of anti-temple. So he goes defensive. No, 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 I, I, I know the temple. I'm, I, I'm down with the temple. But he also goes offensive. But I think you guys are putting too much faith in the temple. The temple's become like an idol for you. Look at verse 44, defensive. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them, and they took it from the land of the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. So yeah, I know the history of the temple. Guys, guys, I, I get the temple, all right? Chill. That's you who are really overemphasizing the temple. However, verse 48, the Most High does not live in the houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? God is bigger than the temple. You guys have made another idol like a golden calf. You've turned the temple into your religion instead of the God of the temple. Well, in case there was anyone in the audience who was not getting the drift, Stephen gets a little blunt in verse 51 as he ends his speech. And he says something I I don't think I've ever said in a sermon. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. Oh, that's a stinger to Jews who've prided themselves on circumcision. You are just like your fathers. Boy, people love to hear that. You're just like your, you're just like your mom. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. They've rejected the deliverer par excellence, Jesus. Was there ever a prophet your fathers had not persecute? They even killed the one, uh, those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him, you who've received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. So he totally flips it on them and indicts them of, of rejecting God's Messiah and God's law. They're the ones who rejected the law because the law predicted Jesus, and they didn't accept Jesus, so they rejected the law. So he just totally flips it. I think this is just a passage where we have to take real warning. We have to be careful. We need to listen to this. Because what this tells me is that it's very possible to be a devoutly religious person like many of us here would consider ourselves and to completely miss God's salvation. Yeah, I look at these folks. They're what we would call wicked religious. Very devout They're very devoted to the law of Moses and the temple and all the the customs. These are serious religious people. They're full-on, hardcore religious folks. And and we have this, I think, this idea in our society that if someone is sincere about their religion or sincere about their spirituality or sincere about their beliefs, that's all that matters. As long as they're sincere, it doesn't matter what they believe or what their spirituality is. It's, it's all good as long as you're sincere about it, as long as it's heartfelt and it means something for you. 
But you know, it doesn't matter if you're sincere, if you're sincerely wrong. What saves us is not our sincerity. What saves us is not our devotion. What saves us is Jesus Christ. He's the Savior. What saves us is not something subjective in us, but it's something outside of us, someone outside of us. And so we could find ourselves just like the Israelites, very, very devout, very religious, very spiritual. But if we reject Jesus, we don't have anything. Because only Jesus can save us from our sins. We can't save ourselves. Christ died and rose again for sinful people like me. I'm, he's the only one who can save me and make me right before God. That's the gospel message. I think it's really important, especially this time of year. It's Christmas. Christmas is great. I love you know, this time of year is fine. We all, we all feel a little more religious this time of year. Everyone feels a little more spiritual this time of year. Everyone feels a little more peace on earthy, goodwill toward many this time of year. We, we all feel a little more do-goodery, you know. It's kind of it's warm fuzzies. It's cool. And people who never come to church, they come to church. Um, people who go to church every you know, all year long, and sometimes they just kind of go through the motions on Sundays. You know, Christmas comes, and we kind of start feeling something. Oh, I'm feeling something again. This is cool. Ah, oh, those carols, man, that's nostalgic or something, but I'm, I'm feeling it. And, and so there's kind of this surge of, of religion and spirituality that we all still, even as, as we're in the land of Oz, there's still a little bit of that residual, even here. We, we feel it, right? But there's this danger that I could go through, say, Christmas, with this kind of renewed religious vibe and totally miss Christ. Even as a Christian, I could go through all of the liturgy of Christmas and all of the, the services and sing all the carols and yet come to the end of the season and I haven't ever drawn close to the Lord himself. Go through the whole Christmas season. And did you ever spend any time praying that Christmas season, just hanging out with Jesus in prayer? No. You know, like, what? How can I do that? Because I'll tell you why. I am totally like these people. This whole, I missed the deliverer thing and I rejected the deliverer, that's not a Jewish problem. That's a human problem. The, the Jewish people in, in Israel are just a microcosm of humanity. The whole human story is right there. They're just an example. It could have been anyone whom God had chosen to work through. It's a human problem. We reject God's Messiah. And so I think it's a warning that, that we not go through religion and, and ritual, especially those of us who are church-going people, and miss the Savior himself, miss a living, abiding relationship with Christ. We can all do it. I don't want to be, verse 51, I don't want to be stiff-necked. You know, like a big dog who's pulling, and the, you know, the lady's trying to get the dog to come, and it's just, you know, wants to sniff something. I don't want to be stiff-necked. I don't want to have uncircumcised ears, you know, like skin over your ears and your heart, so you can't hear and feel like a, like a teenager who's got the earbuds in or the, you know, the, the beats on, and... The parents are like, you're not listening to me. And the kid's like, whatever, you know. I don't, I don't want to be like that toward God. I don't want to resist the Holy Spirit. But the Lord is wooing me to himself and saying, Jeremy, come walk with me. Know me. Obey me. Trust me, Jeremy. And I'm, I'm just resisting the, the, the call of the Spirit. I don't want to be like that. And I know that I can be. So it's a warning to not just sing the songs of Jesus, but to truly know him, to truly trust him. Well, as you can imagine, Stephen's sort of sermon conclusion here is not accepted well. Maybe that's why I've never preached verse 51. <laughs> yeah, look how it ends. So we have Stephen's arrest, we have Stephen's testimony, and then just really quickly here, Stephen's martyrdom. Verse 54, when they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
At this, they covered their ears. Irony, uncircumcised ears, covering their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this against them. And when he had said that, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. Two quick observations and we'll close. Observation number one, these are really super simple. Maybe they're like painfully obvious. But again, I feel like right now we need obvious simple as we're trying to figure out how to live in this brave new world of the 21st century America and the change that have taken place. We need simple and obvious. So here's simple, obvious observation number one. Ready? Stephen suffered and died. We may have to suffer for Christ. He, he really, you know, he, he did this really clever sermon. He was building common ground. He was cleverly developing this offensive thing. He did it really well. And guess what? They totally didn't listen. And so we may build common ground. We may be winsome. We may love. We might love the, the sinner and hate the sin and do all that cleverly, and you still might get stoned. All right, so this is no promise that everything turns out all right if we're just a little more winsome or something. There's suffering and there's, and there's persecution. Stephen is stoned to death. That means being killed by having bludgeoned to death with projectiles and maybe rocks dropped on you, large stones dropped on your body. It's a terrible way to die. It wasn't fun or glamorous. It was terrible. You know, suffering is, is, is real. And, and again, I, I bring this up because I think this is, this is a paradigm shift for us, at least, okay, for me as an American Christian. Because as an American, I'm used to what? The good guy wins. That's the American story. And you can overcome anything if you just work hard enough and try hard enough. And Well, Stephen didn't. He died. And we, I'm, in the immediate, I'm talking about, in this world. He lost in this time right now. Um, and we forget that. You know, as a Christian, this is what I'm, condi- as an American, I should say, I'm conditioned for this. I'm conditioned for comfort, food, <laughs> entertainment, privilege, pleasure, immediate gratification, efficiency, <laughs> no inconveniences. That's my experience as an American, those kinds of things. And that's, I like that, okay? <laughs> so suffering for the gospel doesn't fit anywhere in that. And so when suffering comes, I think it's disorienting for us as Christians because we really haven't learned how to suffer in many ways and for, for the gospel. And so we need to learn that when this happens, this is, part, this is part of the deal. You may have to suffer. You may have great victory in Christ, but you may have to suffer for Christ. And suffering, it, it's not always a happy ending in this life. Okay, that, I mean, that's a way to say it. It doesn't end like a fairy tale always. You know, maybe you're, uh, you've heard the stories about, you know, the photographers who won't take the pictures and the cake bakers who won't bake the cake for weddings that they don't agree with, and they're standing up for their faith, and it's gone to the courts, and they're consistently losing in the courts. And they're being told, listen, uh, we're either you bake the cake or take the pictures or we're going to fine you. And so some of these, these business people are, are closing their businesses because they don't want to compromise what they believe is their values. And, and, you know, you'd like to say, well, I'm sure God's blessing them greatly on the other side with money. Maybe he is, but maybe he won't. It, it's not always a heroic, happy ending. Maybe they're just struggling financially right now. That's suffering. Maybe you're a teenager and you're in, and you're in high school and you're trying to follow Jesus. And so, you know, you're not going to the parties where you know what's happening there and what he'll do if you go. And you're not, you know, you're not willing to sleep around with anybody, and so that limits your, your dating choices. And, uh, and, and you're not doing a lot of these things. You're trying to stand for Jesus. But one of the things that does in school is it just restricts your social options. And then you find yourself often, not always, but sometimes with very few social options, and you know what? That's super lonely. And loneliness stinks. 
you know, go to school without 80 friends. Maybe you only have a few who can accept you as you are as a Christian. And, and you think, well, you know, I'm sure God's going to really bless you there in high school with some different friends. He might, but what if he doesn't? You're suffering for the gospel, for your stand, for righteousness. It's suffering. It's hard. God is with us, and there's a lot more to say. I just want to point that out, that Stephen suffered and died. But on the other hand, the second observation, I'll close with this, is that Stephen suffered and died with Jesus. He was not alone. He stood with Christ, or I should say Christ stood with him. Verse 56, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Every other description we have of Jesus at the right hand of God is sitting, and here he's standing. It's interesting, isn't it? I'm not exactly sure everything that means, the standing. Perhaps probably what seems most likely to me is the standing of Jesus is is here is the true ruler judge, and he's standing in, in, in vindication of Stephen. Stephen has been condemned, and Stephen is about to be lynched, and, and so Jesus stands to vindicate him, the true judge saying, no, 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 I receive his testimony. I, I acquit him. He is he's mine. And so Jesus is kind of overruling the verdict and, and receiving Stephen, uh, not as a criminal who needs to be killed, but as a, a faithful witness, something like that. But Jesus is there standing for Stephen, and, and that's what Stephen sees. You know, how do you, how do you have the face of an angel in the land of Oz? You've got to keep that face looking at Jesus and not at the scary things and not at the outrage. You, you, know, that's, you hear that, you have plenty of that. You've got to keep looking at Jesus and see that Jesus has overcome this world already. That Jesus has been raised, so we need not fear death. That Jesus holds in his hands the keys of death and Hades. That Jesus has already been given the name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That the gospel of Jesus will be preached to all nations and then the end will come. That Jesus has already justified us by his death on the cross. So no matter what what lies or insults or name calling that, that we get, it doesn't matter because the only verdict that matters is the Supreme Court who's a person named Jesus. And he has forgiven us of all our sins and reconciled us to God. And we need to keep our eyes on Jesus and just remember, he's coming back. And that's the final word on everything. And when you have your eyes on Jesus like that, I think that's how you maintain the face of the angel. That's how you can pray like, like Stephen did at the very end. Look, how, look, as he's dying, he says two prayers. Verse 59, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Verse 60, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Which, by the way, are two prayers that Jesus prayed when he was on the cross. Same. So it's again, you see this, he's following Jesus' footsteps. And because his eyes are on Jesus, he, he can pray this way. Just trusting his life into the hands of Christ. Praying for the forgiveness of the people who are, hurt, who are hurting him a lot. And what's really cool is, we know from the book of Acts, God answers both of those prayers. Jesus does receive his spirit. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Jesus forgives the enemies. Because who's standing right there? Saul was there. And Saul is going to be directly forgiven by Jesus and become Paul, the greatest propagator, that the greatest persecutor of the faith becomes in the book of, the, of Acts the greatest propagator of the faith. And so as we live in the land of Oz, there's one thing we have to do. Oh, this is critical. We have to keep preaching the gospel of Jesus. We, we, whether it's a time of revival and everyone wants to hear it, or whether it's a time of persecution and no one wants to hear it, we've got to keep preaching the gospel of Jesus. Why? Because it's through the message of the cross of Jesus that the Holy Spirit works to save sinners and convert people. 
The gospel is the power of God for salvation to change people. And so as long as we're faithful to the gospel, well, then God's going to be saving people, even unlikely people. Nothing can stop the Holy Spirit. There's no law Congress or the UN can pass that can stop people from getting born again from the gospel. It's a dang- the gospel's dangerous. You know? There's no executive order that can stop the Holy Spirit from changing people's hearts. And so, you know, great, arrest us. Get your hands around our throats. Now you have us right where we want you. <laughs> this close so we can tell you about Jesus. Put us on a platform on trial. Great, I'll tell you the gospel. And be careful, you might get saved if God chooses to redeem and exert his saving power. And so, so we can't give up on the gospel because it's the power of God. And so there's Saul giving approval to Stephen's death. Saul, who in just a few chapters will be forgiven by that same gospel. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, we would see you. Show yourself to us, Jesus. We want to see you in your glory. We want to see you in your majesty and your dominion, your saving power. Oh, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would not just be a little statue at a manger scene in our house, but that you would be be the Lord of our hearts, that we would be in a living relationship with you. Oh, God, I pray that if there's anyone here who is not laid hold of Christ, O Lord, that you would be born in their hearts by faith. O Lord Jesus, we do pray that you would help us as American Christians in particular to adjust to faithfulness in a different culture that's happening in our, the culture we thought we used to know. Lord, I pray that you'd help us be faithful, help us to, to not be angry or fearful, but to have the face of an angel that comes by knowing that you're our sovereign Lord. God, I pray that we would build common ground, but we would also speak truth directly. I pray, God, that we would not be afraid to suffer and we would not shrink back from suffering if it comes. Not that we're looking for it, Lord, but help us to be willing to have the mind of Christ. God, we do pray that that you would help us to be direct with the gospel, whether people love it or whether people hate it, whether people want to know more or whether they get really annoyed. Help us just to lovingly and winsomely share the gospel, whatever the response may be. And, oh, Lord, would you save many, we pray. And so, God, help us to be faithful to you, whether good times are bad, whether times of revival or times of resistance, Lord. Give us the faithfulness of Stephen and the faithfulness of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.